Old Testament reading is Deuteronomy 4. We'll begin a reading at verse 15 and read through verse 24. We'll read this Old Testament passage dealing with idolatry as we look at the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. Lord's Day 35. But from God's Word, Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. The Word of the Lord. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There ends our reading from Deuteronomy. Page 1301 in your pew Bible. We're going to read there the first seven verses. Once again, the word of the Lord. 1 John 1 at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. There ends a reading from God. Day 35, page 552. And here we find Lord's Day 35. As you know, the, the Ten Commandments are found, or the law of God, I should say, is found twice in the Catechism. It's found in the first part of the Catechism, very early on, exposing our sin. And now we find the full treatment, the Ten Commandments, in the third part, the last part, dealing with thanksgiving. And in thanksgiving, we deal with worship, especially corporate worship, and how we worship God. 
We read from Lord's Day 35, three questions and answers for our consideration this afternoon. Question 96. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. Question 97. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. Question 98. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No. For we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in some congregations, some denominations, they've been taken over by the worship wars. And in a discussion of that question of how we are to worship God, a question which is inappropriate to ask is this. How would you like to worship God? It's a bad question. How would you like to worship God? That question always ends badly in the scriptures. Our starting point as we begin to think about worship is not how do you want to worship God, but how does God want you to worship him? How do we use God's word in determining that? How do we approach the question of worship in the second commandment? How do we fill up this hour and 15 minutes of corporate worship? Why do we do the things that we do? One of your elders mentioned to me this morning that you changed your liturgy recently. I think you added a song. You may have added a prayer. What gives them the right to do that? Is that biblically permissible to add a song or to add a prayer? And how do we relate this to God, God's word? What passage in the scripture gives us the Lord's Day liturgy? These are questions that we ask and seek to answer this afternoon. But with recognition... As we get into the details of worship, the elements of worship, the circumstances of worship, remember, first and foremost, that worship is to be joyful. It is to be a praise and a thanksgiving to God for what God has done. Worship must be built upon the gospel. We didn't read the words of the second commandment this afternoon, but if you read the law like we did this morning, you remember how the law begins? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. I have delivered you. Now we in 2017, living on this side of the cross, are reminded that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross for us. He shed his blood for our salvation. And therefore, you have freedom. Freedom to worship the Lord in the way that he prescribes in his word. That's not a bondage. That's the freedom to worship him for his praise, and for his glory. The gospel, the gospel informs us how we are to worship and why we are to worship. And this involves our heart. It's at the very heart of the matter. And this involves our motivation, our attitude, our demeanor, our dress, 
our preparation, our goal for worship. What a privilege, what a joy it is to worship the living God. Let us let him direct us in how we are to worship him. Our theme this afternoon is our God calls us to worship him for his own glory. Our God calls us to worship him for his own glory. First, we'll see how he commands. That's question answer 96. Second, because of who he is. Question answer 97. And then third, with the means of grace. Question answer 98. First, we worship God how he commands. God regulates how his people worship him. Remember where we are now? We're in the second commandment. And the Ten Commandments can be divided into two tables or two parts. The first four commandments deal with our relation to God. The last six deal with our relation to our neighbor. In fact, the first four commandments deal primarily with worship. Last week, or whenever you studied Lord's Day 34, I'm assuming you looked at who you are to worship, the only true God. Now the second commandment, how we are to worship, with what name and language you should use to worship is the third commandment, and when, the fourth commandment, when you are to worship. So this afternoon we look at the how. We recognize also, as we get into the how of worship, that all of life is worship. God made men and women as his image bearers to worship. It's the purpose of our existence, is to bring glory through worship. Our whole life is worship. But there's a unique time and place that something is happening right now that does not take place tomorrow. Boys and girls, you know what it is. Because boys and girls, you dress differently today than you, do to, than you do tomorrow. Because today is the Lord's Day. Twice you come to the, Lord, to the house of the Lord to worship. And you do things here that you don't normally do. It's called corporate worship. And God governs what we do during this time. As we look at Lord's Day 35, the question asks, how does God requ- or what does God require in the second commandment? And it says there, we are not to make any image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. God regulates our worship. That's a principle. It's oftentimes called the regulative principle of worship. God regulates what we do in worship. The point is, is that if it's not commanded in worship, then it's forbidden. In order to apply this and understand this distinction... Whatever is not commanded by God is therefore forbidden. We must make a distinction. A distinction between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. And sanctified wisdom is always key in this discussion. Because in the Bible, I asked what chapter you find your Sunday morning liturgy. You don't find it in the Bible. There's not a ready-made liturgy in the Bible. And so what you do is you take the principles from the scriptures and you apply them to Ancaster, Ontario in 2017, God must govern the application of his word. There are elements that God prescribes in worship that must be here. Prayer, singing, the ministry of the word, the reading, the preaching, the hearing of the word, the sacraments, tithes, offerings. In applying those elements, sanctified wisdom takes place so that if you go to a Canadian Reformed church in another town, they may do things slightly differently. And yet, the same principle must operate and the same element must be there. 
God either commands or prescribes or gives examples of worship in Scripture. And from each of them, we can learn something. For instance, we see worship taking place as a dialogue between God and His people, corporately assembled together. Why do we do that? Even if you look at your liturgy sheet, you see that there's a a call to worship. That's God calling you to worship. Then you say something. It's a confession of dependence. And then God says something. It's called a greeting. And then you say something, which is a song. And then you call upon God. He comes to you in your word. You sing in response. That's a dialogue. That's a conversation. That's not just happens to be how they wrote it up here. That's purposed. Why do you do it this way? Because this operates under a principle you find in the Bible. Let me give you one example. Joshua 24. Maybe you have that written on your living room wall. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But do you know what's going on in that passage? Joshua calls all the people, especially the elders together, and they have a dialogue. And Joshua speaks on behalf of God, and the people respond. And Joshua says, this is what God has done for you. Will you worship him? And the people says, yes, we will worship the Lord. He says, are you sure? You are committing yourself today to worship the Lord. Yes, we will worship the Lord, they say. It's a whole dialogue, a whole covenantal renewal ceremony. That same thing takes place here in worship. It's a covenantal renewal ceremony. It's a dialogue between God and his people. We see this also taking place in the New Testament. God speaks and his people respond. There's elements of worship must be there. But the way those take place are considered the circumstances of worship. And that's what fills out our outer liturgy. I noticed this afternoon, for instance, we have five songs, including hymn one. This morning, I think we had six songs. What one's better? Five songs or six songs? What if you had seven songs? Maybe eight songs or four songs? May that take place? Yes. So does this mean that we can just decide what we want to do to fill up the time, the frequency of worship? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Circumstances must be governed by sanctified wisdom. For instance, I doubt this discussion's ever taken place here, but maybe the elders have had a discussion. You know what? Maybe we should change our morning worship to 4 o'clock in the morning and our evening worship to 11 p.m. at night. Would that be wise? It wouldn't. It would affect your sleep patterns. I don't think many children would be here. There'd be a number of issues with that. It wouldn't be wise for the elders to decide that. And that's the key. Who decides the circumstances? The brothers that God in his wisdom have called to be elders of this church. The elders must be sure that they're serving God, being faithful to God, seeking to edify the congregation in decisions on worship. But the church is not a democracy. The elders may have a decision to make. Your afternoon service, maybe they think it would be wiser to have it later, maybe 4.30. And they might even have a congregational meeting and say, congregation, what is your opinion on this? We just want your advice. But ultimately, the decision will come down to the consistory, to the elders. They're the ones that will be responsible. It's a principle that God governs his worship and has sanctified wisdom in a local congregation these circumstances. How is the Lord's Supper celebrated? The 
the administration of baptism. Does a minister sprinkle three times? Does he just sprinkle one time and say the Trinitarian name? What's right? What's wrong? What's biblical? Well, there's circumstances. There's wisdom. You can give arguments, and I'm sure some of you may have arguments on any number of things. But the sanctified wisdom involves a freedom for a local congregation. The key is, is that we don't sit around and we don't have a worship committee decide, how do we want to worship God? God tells us. And the reason why he must tell us is because we're sinners. God tells us. He prescribes for us how we are to worship. And possibly the greatest principle of worship that's lost today and churches empty out because of a misunderstanding of this principle is that fact that we come to worship, to worship God. That's very simple, but so many people don't grasp that. We come to worship, to worship God. This is about bringing something to God. This is about offering something to God. God may in the process give you a blessing by letting you sin under his word, but God is the audience here today. You are not the audience here. God is the audience. You come to offer yourselves in corporate worship to God. Today, it's completely the opposite. I didn't get much out of it. That, that whole idea of not getting much out of it. And some, sometimes people have, have good motives behind that, but you're giving. Worship is about giving. It's about bringing. It's about your heart. It's about singing. That's why it involves preparation. That's why it involves all, all of these things you've been taught from your youth. What you do on Saturday nights. It's all involved. The fact that we are going together. Think of the Old Testament people of God walking together in a caravan. All together up to Mount Zion to worship the Lord. We drive in our own cars and we come to the parking lot. But we're coming here together as a community of the saints to worship the Lord. It's about Him. It's for His glory. It's for His praise. Not to enlighten your mind. Not to make you feel better. Though those are all blessings we receive. It's first and foremost about God. We come to worship Him. And in the process, in the process we hear the voice of the Savior. We worship God how he commands. We worship God, secondly, because of who he is. And this is especially involving images. This Lord's Day makes it clear that images in themselves are not wrong. And the reason why it has to say that is because of the way that the Bible gives this commandment. If you remember back to Deuteronomy 5, it says there... In verse 8, you should not make for yourself a carved image or of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. If you just stopped at verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an image, we'd have a problem. We make images all the time. My kids play with images all the time. You wouldn't be able to have stuffies. You wouldn't be able to have dolls. You wouldn't be able to have Barbies. They're all images of things below. You could not have a picture, a drawing, or anything of anything that God's made. Those are all images. But verse 9, in our catechism, rightly connects this to worship. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the key. God commands 
in some places, the making of images. Let me give you an example. Exodus 25. In case there are somebody who is against any form of images, which Muslims technically are. but Exodus 25, verse 19. Here we have the, the uh, contributions for the sanctuary and the tabernacle in Exodus 25, verse 19. The directions given, make one cherub, that's an angel, on the one end, and one cherub on the other, this is for the Ark of the Covenant. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. Down, down to verse 31. The table for the bread, the, show, or the golden lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. You put flowers on it. Those are also images. 26, verse 1, you shall make a tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple scarlet yarns. You shall make with them cherubim, that's multiple angels, skillfully worked into them. Those are images. Images are not forbidden. In fact, in Exodus, those images are actually connected to worship. Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, the curtain in the temple has cherubim on there, on the curtain itself, and they're not forbidden. The same is true and even extended, expanded more in Solomon's temple. So the prohibition against images is primarily found in the second phrase, or in the phrase in the second commandment, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, or you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? That's what we're going to talk about for a minute here. Why? Is that a commandment? What's so bad about worshiping God through an image? No one would themselves think that the image was God himself. And this is similar to the modern mantra often said about worship. It doesn't matter that so much what happens in worship so long as your heart is in the right place. Heard that before? It doesn't matter what you do, it just matters that your heart is in the right place. Not biblically. If your heart could be in the right place, but your actions are wrong, you're still going to die. God will strike you dead in the Bible. It happens many times. It's not just about the heart. The heart is important. Don't take the heart out of it. But it's not just about the heart. As the people waited for Moses on the mountain in Exodus 32, their heart was in the right place wanting to worship God. Was it not? Moses is up on the mountain. They said, Aaron, where'd Moses go? We're waiting to hear from God. We want to worship the God who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron formed a golden calf for the people and told them the next day would be set apart to worship God, the God who brought them out of Egypt. They made a golden calf. They did not think that God was actually a calf, a cow. Of course not. But what they wanted, they wanted to see something, and then through that, by seeing it, then they can worship God. If I could just picture in my mind something, if I could just see something, then I could worship God through it. And that became the problem. They worshiped God through something. It was a deadly mistake, but their hearts were in the right place. Nadab and Abihu offered an uncommanded sacrifice of incense to the Lord. Doesn't sound so bad. It was bad. 
because God forbid people to worship him in any other way than he has commanded them in his word. They were immediately consumed by God's wrath. Worship in this way is a matter of life and death. But why is it the case that God is so clear and it's so important that God cannot be visibly portrayed in any way and worshipped through images? There's one commentator that gives four reasons, and they're helpful. At least three of the four are helpful. John Frame mentions these. And the first reason is because of the history of redemption. People have argued that since God is invisible, to make an image of God would be, dis- would be to distort his being. This is not really a, a biblical argument. It's true that God is invisible. If you ever... If, you have, uh, if you're taking sermon notes, you might want to write down a couple passages. God is invisible, Romans 1, verse 20. Colossians 1, verse 15. We're not going to look these up now. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. No one has seen God, John 1, verse 18. John 5, verse 37. But God often reveals himself in the way of a theophany. A showing forth of God. Think of the cloud of pillar and fire. Think of the burning bush in Exodus 3, where Moses sees, sees God, in a sense, as a theophany, as a bush that's not burning up in the wilderness. He reveals himself in the incarnation. Jacob saw God, Genesis 32, verse 30 says, face to face. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen him who sent me. Or think of the implications of our scripture reading. First John 1, verses 1 to 3, that Jesus, Jesus himself, is God's self-revelation. It's, it's a beautiful, complex idea. Jesus is the self-revelation of God. Also, man himself is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So it's not completely true to argue that God cannot be imaged God incarnate as Jesus Christ is reason enough. Rather, as we read from Deuteronomy 4, verse 15 and following, forbidding of images, God makes clear that he chose at that point in history to not reveal himself visibly. The word used in verse 15, if your Bibles turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, there in verse 15, let's get back there. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that God, that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. You saw no form on that day. The word used there in verse 15 is the Hebrew word temuna, which is translated form in our text. John Frame says, the point is that God has no temuna, form. Or that God's tamuna can never be seen. God may have shown his tamuna, his form to Israel on the day of that assembly, but he chose not to. End of quote. The visibility of God's form is a future longing for the weary pilgrim. That means it's, it's going to come. We're just not there. The idea of one day your faith will be sight. But it's not going to be while you're living on this earth, waiting for Jesus Christ to return. The day will come where your faith will be sight. 
but not yet. And God says, not yet. It's a future. It's a future looking and a longing. We have a natural longing to see God, and we will see him. Not on earth. When Jesus returns, every eye will see. Revelation 1, verse 7. He shall return visibly as he ascended. Acts 1. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul says, For we, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The fact that we cannot or may not make any image of God leaves us longing to see God in eternal glory. There is a day where God himself will be the sun. God himself will be the light. And we will see our Savior face to face. Second commandment at that point is gone. It's fulfilled, done away with, because we will be before the image of God forevermore. And that's God as a spirit who's incarnated himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grasp that. Second, we may not make an image of God because God is a living God. What is an idol? It's impersonal. God is personal. All religions view their deity as, as impersonal, as, as far away. But not the true living God. The God who is a consuming fire, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, has come down unto us in covenant. He walked with Adam. He covenanted with Abraham. He passed between the animals that were cut up in Genesis chapter 15. He came even closer in the sending of Jesus Christ. Think of John 1. The Word became flesh, and the eternal Word of God dwelt among us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ shows the personality of God. God is personal. He communes with his people. We walk in fellowship with God. He's not a God who's far away, who doesn't know us. He knows our name. He knows the numbers of hair on our head. Not just because he's omniscient, all-knowing, but because he cares He's a God of fatherly providence over his children. He's not like an idol who cannot see, who cannot hear, who cannot speak. Think about how the Bible talks about them, Isaiah or, or Psalm 115 or Psalm 135. Those who worship idols become like them. They become dumb. They become impersonal. They're worshiping that which is made by human hands. The same wood that formed these pews could be formed into an idol that someone will foolishly bow down to. Idols are a lie. The very essence of God as a personal, sovereign, and loving being cannot be captured in an idol. The third reason Frame argues for lack of is for a lack of respect an idol would show to God's true image. Or rather, God's true image bears man. But that argument's not very compelling, so we'll skip that one. Fourth, God's covenant jealousy, as is found in the language of the commandment, forbids our making of an image of God. And we read Deuteronomy 5, in the commandment itself, in verse 8, uh, verse 9, You shall not bow down to them or, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
We mentioned it this morning, dealing with marriage and the jealousy of a godly husband. But now he mentions a jealous God. There's a lot of people that don't like that word. Why do you read the Ten Commandments? It says God is jealous. God doesn't seem jealous. He's God Almighty. Jealous is an imperfection. Wrong. Not when it comes to God. Not this type of jealousy. His jealousy forbids our making of an image. And what it deals with is covenantal loyalty. That's what his jealousy is. He wants his bride to have eyes only for him. He wants his church not to serve another God, not to walk in the ways of the world and in the way of the Bible and try to combine these two. Israel tried, it failed. It's called syncretism. It will fail every time. But rather to walk in God's ways, to have an eye toward God's law, to let his word govern us, to be our authority over doctrine and life. It's the covenant jealousy of God. Idolatry is covenant disloyalty to the max. We might have a question as we think about this curse that's found in this verse, or in the second commandment. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now listen to this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Is God going to punish the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren for the sin of their fathers? The answer is no. But what does take place, and what does this mean, is that the home of an unbeliever, of an idolater becomes an unbeliever, what happens is that the home becomes a place of ungodliness. And a home which promotes idolatry will also promote idolatry in their children. And they will promote idolatry in their children, and it will continue as the covenant is passed down from generation to generation and godliness. And I'm sure many of you sat around your lunch table today and you prayed to God, thank you God for our fathers and their father and their father and your covenant faithfulness from generation to generation. Well, to use a non-technical term, covenant unfaithfulness is a reality as well. It's unbelief. Unbelief prospers unbelief, which prospers unbelief. Idolatry leads to idolatry, which will lead to idolatry. That's what it means. The third and fourth generation will reap what the previous generation had sown. That's what it means. The sin of the fathers becomes the sin of their children. Indeed, part of the punishment for the parents who sin in this way in idolatry, especially fathers, is that they live to see the awful consequences of their sin on their children and on their grandchildren. The punishment upon the children is a punishment that doesn't necessarily lead to damnation. Rather, Ezekiel 18 makes it clear that if a child turns away from sinful behavior of his father, he will live and not die. God tells the kings of Israel and Judah, turn, turn from the sins of your fathers. Because somebody has an ungodly father does not therefore give them a reason to be ungodly themselves. But they must turn. And the thousand, showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Who are they? 
The thousands who receive God's steadfast love and the blessing of his commandment is the complete, the total church, the perfect, the complete number of God's people. Your faithfulness is unto a thousand generations. Those are the four grounds for this commandment. That's why God forbids the making of an image. And then thirdly, with the means of grace. Our final question and answer of this Lord's Day is directly related to the practice of the Roman Catholic Church in terms of visual storytelling. If you have your Lord's Day open, look back there. But may not images, or, but may images not be tolerated in the churches for books for the laity? Has anybody ever seen books for the laity? What are those? Well, it's visual storytelling in the days of the Reformation and beforehand. These would either be books, these would be stories, these would be scripture encased sometimes on stainless glass windows, or in murals, or in statues. The place where I'm from, the Roman Catholic Church in town, just built a, not a cathedral, one under a cathedral. $29 million is what it cost. And now it's become a tourist place. You could go there, and schools go there to see the visual, the art form of the 12 stages of the cross. It's like a mile-long walk you make. You're supposed to pray at each of these stages of the cross. What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Why do you have to have these 12 stages of the cross? They're in the Bible. Just read the Bible. What's wrong with the Bible? Well, visually, it gets in your mind. Can we have that? The 12 stages of the cross? I mean, these windows are kind of plain. We could put them up here. Happens to be 12 windows. The answer is no. We must not. Would it teach your children? Do you think your children could look up and they could learn the 12 stages of the cross? They could learn about the 12 apostles by looking at the windows if there was... Yeah, they could. I'm sure they could. It would probably be a very effective way to teach. It's just not God's way. God could have done that. He could have said, you could do that. Teach however you want. But he didn't. In fact, he limited it. He limited the teaching of God's word to be primarily, corporately, and this is images or the book for the laity, to worship, to preaching. It says there, no, we should not be wiser than God. Who'd want to be wiser than God? Well, anybody who wants to instruct or find a new way to teach people contrary to the way that God has prescribed. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images. It means they can't talk. It would just be a window. It would just be a picture. It would just be a book. But by the living preaching of his word. The warning of our catechism is that we must not attempt to be wiser than God. And frankly, isn't every form of idolatry trying to be wiser than God? All the way back to the first sin of the Garden of Eden, we can see a desire to be wiser than God. How would making images be wiser than God? Because God has ordained a means of instruction and is the living preaching of the Word. Romans 10 verse 15 points out that this is how God works faith. It's therefore one of the two means of grace. It's vitally important for the Christian. There are many things you can do which will grow you in your faith. 
and you ought to do them. You ought to read the Bible. You ought to pray. You ought to go to Bible study. You ought to be involved in spiritual disciplines. You may fast. You may go to prayer meetings. You may. There's all kinds of wonderful things that will help you grow in your faith. But the number one means of growth, number one, is the corporate preaching of the living word of God. It happens here. Only here. It doesn't happen Tuesday night around the supper table, though much good teaching may be taking place there. The preaching is the God-ordained way, God-ordained way of giving grace. The preaching is to be living. It must not be dead. And there's a warning to ministers as well. A minister must not leave the word of God out there. So you walk away from the sermon and say, wow, that was, that was pretty neat. I never connected all those dots. That's great, but it's out here. Preaching must be living. It must grab hold of you. It must be brought down. It can start up there, but it must be brought down to your life. Okay, pastor, now. Now, what does this mean? What does this look like? You should not make any images of God. I don't make images of God, but I have to hear a sermon about it. What does this mean for your life? And every single sermon ought to come down to the life of God's people. It comes down to the heart. And when you leave the preaching of the word, you ought to be changed from the preaching of the word. And that doesn't happen magically. It happens by grace through faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit. The word ought to be applied. The word ought to be explained. Exposited. Communicated to people's minds. Communicated to people's hearts. It should move you to new obedience. Why? Because what you believe affects the way that you live. And if it doesn't, then you're lying. What you believe affects the way you live, and if it doesn't, you're lying. That means you don't believe it. It's not a dead word. This is not a dead word. This is the living word. And those who drink of the living water, which is Jesus Christ, he says, living springs of water will dwell up within them. It moves you. And it must move you. And you must let it move you. And you must let the Holy Spirit work within you. One way you are taught is through the preaching. Preaching is the God-ordained education of the whole congregation. In a sermon, in a sermon that's up here, the children are still spoken to. They don't walk away from this sermon if they're eight years old knowing that we should not worship God in images, but something important is taking place in Sunday worship. We're meeting God, not through an image, but in worship, and especially through preaching. A child can grasp that. The preaching is not just to children, to parents, to their grandparents, it's to the single, it's to the elderly, those in the middle, those who have been from the cradle under the preaching of the word, and those who are new to the Reformed faith, and new to the gospel, both learn and grow from the preaching of the word. Our catechism says that he does not want his people instructed by idols that are dumb, idols that cannot even talk. Instead, on the other hand, it's through the preaching that God speaks to his people. And that's why it's important 
to heed the preached word, to listen intently, and to admit your need. Frankly, it's easier to say this here, that's why you need to be daily in prayer for your pastor. He's not just balancing a life of, of, of busyness and, and working on sermons and visiting people and teaching catechism. The weight upon your pastor who must therefore translate the word of God to the lives of God's people is a heavy task. It's always upon him. Sunday is always coming. He's doing something which he is unworthy to do in himself. Who's worthy to open up the Holy Scriptures and explain them to the hearts and lives of God's people? Who deserves such a calling? No one. No one's worthy of such a calling. The Scriptures make clear. This is a jar of clay. Man can be broken. Man can be replaced. And yet, God has called ministers to do that work. To minister the word. Uphold your pastor. Remember him in prayer. Encourage him. Tell him that you're listening to his sermons. Engage. Visually engage. Take notes. Listen. Ask him questions. Ministers like questions about his sermons. Not always critical questions right after the sermon, but good questions. You've been listening. You want to grow. Pray for your pastor. And yet, thinking about preaching... If preaching, congregation, does not pierce your heart, what good is it? If it does not pierce your heart, knowledge alone will not save you. But faith, trust in the only one who is actually able to keep the second commandment, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, these commandments, they're all rooted in grace. They're all rooted in the gospel. They are our gratitude. They are our new obedience as believers. And second, for the second commandment, and frankly, the first four commandments, how extremely important is our worship. With all the, the busyness of life and, and the dirtiness of life and the brokenness of life, you come here and you just stop. You listen. You meditate upon God's word. You need this. You come here to worship the Lord, but what you receive is the word of life. You come here to engage in worship. It's your whole being. It's your whole heart. I talked to a brother this morning. He said, you know, in the worship this morning, it was emotional. Something emotional about it. It's because it should be. Because your heart's involved. That's a natural response. I mean, you have to cry your eyes out every worship service, but you might. But it's emotional. Because what we are doing here as we walk this road is we're headed somewhere. We're headed to a place where we will see God face to face, but not yet. We only see very dimly. But the time is coming. And what do we have here? Just a little glimpse, just a little taste of the glory that is to come. It's about worship. It's central in our worship service that we meet with God, the one who gives us confidence to worship God. For it is in the word that we find Christ. It is the Lord who calls us to worship. It is Christ who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Who here is not laboring and heavy laden? Who here does not need rest? 
Christ calls us. And the second commandment is about Christ. The fulfillment of the law. We find Christ in the law in our worship service. We read it this morning. We find Christ in the assurance of pardon. We find Christ in our prayers. We find Christ in our songs. We find Christ in the preaching. We find Christ in the offering. There's not one area of this worship service and of this corporate time where Christ is absent. Why? Because we're Christians. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been bought with a price. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then you may worship. May God work in our hearts. It will be for the reason of salvation that we seek to worship our holy God, our living God, in the very way that he teaches us and commands us in his word. To the glory of God alone. Amen.